from just west of the Ward Place gate on the San Diego campus of Seton Hall University. He is the prodigal son of Marlboro Township, Mike Dizzy Dizzeri, class of 2001. I am persona non grata at the Maplewood Municipal Pool, Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997. We are the number one Seton Hall Pirate podcast in San Diego. We are Left Coast Pirates. Or should I say Left Coast Pirate? I'm flying solo today as Mike has prior commitments he couldn't get out of. But fear not, someone has their priorities intact and I'll try to do my best here today. You know, growing up a pirate fan in the late 80s and early 90s, if you wanted content about the pirates, you could only really go to one source, newspapers. Even the games weren't all televised. It was it was a time where you might listen to the game on SOU or then read the paper the next morning to see what happened. Well, luckily, with their success during that time frame, there were plenty of stories about them. Every other day from about March Madness to the end of the tournament, you could expect either a game recap, some kind of puff piece, or even a Jerry Eisenberg editorial in the Star Ledger. Obviously, with the internet, things have changed the game for better or worse if you look at it in certain ways. Now, you can't find an article in the Star Ledger about the Pirates. You can't find anything on NewJersey.com, which basically is the Star Ledger, about the Pirates. You, you look at it right now. I checked it yesterday, and the latest article online was from 25 days ago. But now, it's actually a lot easier to access information about recruiting, game results, anything you want. But you have to go to different places. And today, we're going to talk to someone whose website may be considered the preeminent location for all pirate news and information. He is a longtime pirate fan and was a writer for SouthOrangeJuice.com from 2011 to 2015. He also briefly contributed to PirateCrew.com on the Rivals.com platform. He is known for being the founder of SHUHoops.com, the go-to source for everything Seton Hall basketball. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates, Chris McManus. Chris McManus, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's uh, it's a little bit colder on the East Coast, a little bit of snow. Yeah, we had a little rain here yesterday, so it, it we actually got some winter. Chris, you know, we just <laughs> talked about uh, your resume and how you were a contributor to South Orange Juice, and you've uh, posted also to Rivals. Give us the origin of how SHUHoops.com got to be. So it's kind of surprising to most people, but I actually didn't go to Seton Hall as an, as an undergrad. I did take some grad school classes there, but I was blogging for SB Nation, which was um, South Orange Juice, about seven years ago. And then I decided to make a switch to my own gig about four seasons ago because I'm pretty IT-oriented. I work in IT, and I wasn't really a fan of how they were kind of running things on their network. So I get more control, you know, more responsibilities, and some less credibility at first. You know, I had to actually earn my way into getting media passes, and I had to work on a trial basis, but... That was kind of the um, the journey from kind of like an unknown blogger to season passes for uh, media. How long did it take you to get a following? Yeah, <laughs> I remember. So at the beginning of Twitter, I had like 20 followers. And I, if you remember, assistant coach Dan McHale, he was one of those 20. So I guess he has an eye for talent, right? <laughs> but um, so it's come a long way since, you know, 20 followers. And it was like, then it kind of takes off eventually. It seems like you, you don't have any followers and it kind of has like a, an, an upward tick. 
but yeah, it took a lot of years. It's it's been seven little maybe eight years in the making to where I know. So with the assistant coach being a follower, did that kind of give you an inside uh, look into the team? Did he actually give you information? Uh, yeah, yeah. If you, you know, it's in basketball and I, I guess every profession, it's really scratching each other's back. And, um, you know, he kind of helped me out with some information. And, I, you know, I saw him on the recruiting trails a few times and we talked about, you know, who, who they were looking at. So he was a really good guy. In those regards, uh, what kind of access do you have to the current team? It's kind of some behind-the-scenes stuff that I would have never envisioned so many years ago, you know, eight years ago when I was started this. During the late Gonzo and early Willard, Willard years, access was a little bit more tight. I was actually kind of straight-up just denied access. But now one-on-one -on -one player interviews are pretty normal, and I think Willard knows me on a first-name basis. That's kind of semi-surreal. And... Um, you never really enter the players' locker room at the Rock. It's, it's a, they do it a little bit differently. But I've stood amongst the locker, lockers at NCAA tournament games at, at the Garden, and that kind of brings you closer to all access. You really, really feel like you're kind of in it with them. And my most memorable moment was after the Big East title game. I was interviewing Derek Gordon. He had the, the trophy between his legs and the Garden's net around his neck, and he was just speaking from the heart. It was, it was pretty emotional. So I think like no other student non-student fans will get to experience something like that 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 is pretty cool i remember that game we were we we're going nuts uh here on the left coast as well so do you still have your media credential from that year oh, no just in general yep i've had season passes since the 2014 classes freshman year so i guess that was the 2014-15 season so i've had you know pretty much every home game since then how frequently do you uh, attend the games? Are you there? Are you there in every home game? I think I've missed two or three in the you know since I started in that season. So you know it's it's pretty rare that I that I'm not at a home game. You know, with that uh, access, I'm sure you have to be a little sensitive with uh, some of the things you have to end up writing. Um, but looking through your archives, and I'm not sure whether this was before that kind of level of access or not, but you had some sensitive and, dare I say, even critical pieces written over the years. You ever get any blowback for those pieces? Actually, I don't, I don't think I have. I mean, as you just mentioned, the, the massive losing streaks during that 2014-15 season, you know, going to uh, Karnaseka in the snow and after the Gibbs elbow and, you know, those kind of dark years there was a lot of negative writing but it was kind of it was kind of fair and balanced and I think uh, Willard would uh, would agree with that so and being balanced is something I've taken pride in because I don't really get an automatic pass for neutrality like a newspaper would or something like that and I hadn't ever interacted with him before but two seasons ago Willard's brother who <laughs> looks kind of uh, identical to him actually came up to me during a game and complimented uh, my writing and said he reads my stuff regularly so if Kevin ever gets me on Get, gives me some flack, I'm going to cite that as my defense. Any players ever say, hey, I go to your site, I read your stuff, I like it? I don't think I've ever gotten that directly, but I think, well, I know uh, Angel Delgado follows me and um, uh, Sterling Gibbs did, and I, I think Shavar Reynolds. So, you know, there's been a handful of players who have followed me on Twitter, so who knows how much they're kind of reading in the uh, shadows, but um, no, nothing directly. Was there ever a piece you, you wrote that you said, oh, I'm going to get some crap for this? Probably during that 14-15 season, there was, I mean, at that point, the highlights were just, how good can I write, you know, kind of a 
not a negative piece, but, you know, objectively negative. How, how, so I kind of was bracing for some flack during that year, but no, I never, uh, I can't recall something specific. You know, I was kind of rereading some of your pieces, and, and one of the more interesting ones uh, were uh, the ones basically about the Gibbs-Whitehead feud and, and the reactions. that I mean, that just seemed like a whole lot of drama for a team that really wasn't all that good in the big picture. You know, they were kind of falling apart at the seams, and you saw what the team could be. It wasn't ready. So what do you remember from that season? Yeah, I mean, that feud specifically, um, I think <laughs> – Speaking of writers getting flack, I think it was the AP, whoever the AP guy who was um, associated press guy who was covering Seton Hall. He actually wrote that. I think he blogged about the the infamous Whitehead Posse, if you if you remember that. So I mean, just using that as an example, that yeah, that was some wild stuff. I think there was some confrontations between Desi and Jaron Cena in locker rooms post game and. Um, yeah, that, that was all over the place. Cause yeah, it was kind of like two teams within a team kind of conflicting with, with each other. Point. You, you look at the quote unquote whitehead posse and they're all still relatively involved. I mean, Isaiah was at the game the other day. The guys on the West coast are always tweeting about, uh, what's happening in the season. So it's that I, I feel a lot of bond from them with the teams yeah at the time it was kind of it seemed justified in a way and um even though it seemed like a baseless um assertion but the year obviously the following year winning the the big east and going to the tournament kind of kind of made everyone forget about that so as a fan that must have been truly exciting as well and, and this year's team exciting everybody especially with their results so far Especially it being this considered rebuilding year. Did you ever look at this year as a rebuilding year as well? Yeah, definitely. Preseason, it was always a two-year plan. And I think that was that was my big headline after the Kentucky win was, you know, hey, everyone, you got to wake up. This is no longer just a, who are we going to prog- watch progress during the season. It's This team can actually make the tournament. So that was kind of the turning point expectation-wise. Because, yeah, I was thinking fringe bubble team, maybe NIT, before the season, and now I think they have all the tools to earn an NCAA bid, especially the all-important non-conference wins. So um, they're actually deeper than last year's team, more versatile, and but maybe they just lack some of the firepower and explosiveness. What do you think the ceiling is for this team? This year or? This year. I mean, I yeah, I think the ceiling is definitely a semi-comfortable NCAA bid. I think they can play their way off the bubble. Yeah, I, I, there's no reason why they can't do that. I don't know if you visit the uh, sites like Rivals and, and some other places, uh, but there's been a lot of chatter, especially after the big wins, you know, Kentucky, Maryland, the Johnnies. Do you buy into the hype that with no clear dominant team this year in the Big East that they could even possibly challenge for the Big East title? I think it's there's as much parity as there's been since the new Big East has started. Um, you know, Villanova struggled with the Paul at the Pavilion the other night and you know, obviously Seton Hall lost at DePaul and St. John's isn't struggling now. So, I mean, there's, yeah, there's no reason why they can't. And Marquette, they're, they're, they're very good at home, but they're pretty average on neutral courts and away from home. So I think the field's wide open. Who's been the biggest revelation so far this year? Oh man, it has to be Quincy McKnight. I've been hyping him up on Twitter and he had a rough 
couple first games, and I think I tweeted about it yesterday or the day before, and people were getting on him, and it was terrible, and all that. I don't want to see him on the court again. And now you look at him, and he's shutting down everyone's best guard, and he's also playing some nice point guard too. So I think he's kind of been the biggest revelation. Did you have expectations that that uh, Romaro Gill was going to do what he did? He was a, a huge unknown, uh, pun intended, because no one had seen him play, and he was, you know, one of almost like a Canarius Basketball Academy type recruit. No one really knew much about him, you know, semi-overseas product. So, and then we saw him, I think Maryland, obviously Maryland was the coming out party for him, and people really saw what he can do if he has the, the right matchup in, in the right situation. So, I mean, in smaller sample sizes, he's been just as big of a re- revelation. His return time has been awfully quiet. You got any news on that? He was questionable. Or, no, highly doubtful for uh, yesterday. And it seemed like Willard thinks he can go against um, in a couple of days. Who are they playing again? <laughs> That's some good news there. He does make a, a change when he's in. And while this team isn't perfect and, and every team needs uh, growth and improvement, where do you see this team uh, having improvement for growth? Well, this year, I think getting Torian Thompson to contribute more consistently, he obviously has something not many big men can sport, you know, take guys off the dribble from the perimeter and all these sort of wacky like horse shots. But um, just getting him to more consistently contribute would be great for the forward depth. And I think Miles Kale also finding some consistency because obviously, you know, see plays like Kentucky, he, he's a big he's a big time player at times, but at other times he kind of disappears, he gets a shot block. So those two guys just being a little bit more consistent and finding that second and third score um, after Miles Powell's would really put this team at another level. Uh, circling back to Torian, we've had lots of debate here on uh, Left Coast Pirates about what's going on with him. I mean, he's been here with the team now for a good year and a half. Why is it just not working? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I tweeted about this, I guess maybe the DePaul game. or, But it seems like Willard just keeps going to that well. He keeps bringing him off the bench as maybe the sixth or the seventh man and letting him, it seems like he has a green light because you would see other guys, maybe a Desi or someone else get benched if they were kind of going, you know, as much hero ball as sometimes he shows. But obviously Willard sees something in him and keeps keeps calling on him. So, I mean, I kind of have to defer to his judgment. But um, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily say he hasn't put it all together because we've seen it in bursts, but... Again, it's just about being more consistent because he could really be, you know, a 10 plus points per game guy easily. What do you think is holding the team back from getting to that next level? I think maybe that explosiveness that I mentioned earlier, they don't, they'll, they'll be in every game. They'll fight with Kentucky, Maryland. We know that. But I don't think they're going to beat a Big East team by 10 points like maybe last year's team was capable of. They don't have that extra oomph. They have the fight that maybe last year's team didn't, but they don't have that second Miles Powell that can really just, you know, blow teams out of the water. So I think I think that's what's kind of maybe holding them back from being what I think could be a Sweet 16 team next year. The last game I think I saw them start well was the Maryland game. You know, we came out at Maryland. We really punched them in the mouth, kind of kept it going. It just seems like we haven't had that ability to do that against any of the Big East teams. Yeah, it's weird because even uh, against Marquette, I mean, they actually did start pretty well. I don't I don't know. Maybe some people missed it because it was on Fox Sports 2 and it was a little bit of a mess. But they actually did start well. I, I think they were up, what, 11-4 or something like that. But then, obviously, they fell off by a wide margin. 
And it just seems like if they can just get those first paths sorted out, they're actually should probably crunch the numbers. They're a really good second half team from what we've seen. They really lock it down in that second half. The turnovers go way down. The defense gets ratcheted up. But uh, it if we started off better, this team we're, this isn't a sustainable way of of for success. You know, you can't expect to do a mad rush in the second half against quality teams and expect victories. Yeah, I wrote that in my post game observations yesterday. It's kind of it's a it's a weird balance. Do you trust the team to keep coming back or do you kind of focus on tightening up some of those things or maybe you do both, but it just seems like an odd conundrum because like we finally have trusted this team to play with with like 10 point deficits, but I don't know if that's sustainable like you said. Maybe that's where I stole the idea from. Sorry there, Chris. Didn't mean to ask. <laughs> maybe. Well, I, I'm one of those guys that goes to uh, your site after every game to see what you got to say. What's what's a favorite site of yours to go to? I mean, I, I feel like everyone probably follows him by now, but obviously Jerry Carino does a ton of great work for uh, Seton Hall and the coverage because, you know, since the dawn of the social media era, maybe about, you know, 2011 or so, the obviously the star ledger has fallen off covering the team and you know all, just all the papers kind of getting rolled back so i think him being that stable and having you know he's, he's very very good at what he does people don't see all the things behind the scenes but um yeah he's got he's obviously a must read you know i mentioned it in the intro uh, i grew up in maplewood so i had the star ledger on my porch every morning and I, i'd be reading all the little pieces about seton hall basically daily from Midnight Madness out until the tournament. Now it seems like if you want Seton Hall coverage, you've got to look at the New York Post. So there's not really a local paper covering the team. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, it's really a shame. And yeah, it's, it's really just the Asbury Park Press and Jerry, like I said. But I actually spoke about this with Jerry recently. I think I think it's a, it was a combination of things. One, it was the changing of the guards from print news to uh you know social media and blogging you know that's kind of where i came in actually i saw that niche so is that culture change along with the team being you know pretty bad during the late gonzo early willard years a lot of controversy and that sort of stuff and you know attendance down and not a lot of clicks right because that's what drives the market is how many clicks do you get so combine um a pro market with not a huge fan base and you know not a great team and i think that if that wasn't the case, if we were seeing this type of team in 2011 and 2010 and you know 2009 around that era, I think we we might have the Star Ledger still following them and maybe another paper too. So it's kind of like a combination of things. To the point about attendance, it's actually kind of disconcerting here from uh, from the West Coast at least that a game like Seton Hall Louisville needed to have like almost this this begging from from Seton Hall for folks to buy tickets. And as, as you look at the numbers, this team's been successful for the past four years, so I don't know that there's any excuses there for folks not understanding where this team's at. But the, the attendance still seems a little weak from, from out here. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, I've been as critical of that as maybe anyone. And, I, I mean, some of the tickets sold have been pretty solid night in, night out. And, but... For people showing up at, at some point, I used to be more cynical, but at, at this point it's more, I think this might be, this might be the max. I don't know if we're going to see in the TV era where every game you could stream it from your app in Alaska or wherever you may be on the West coast, you could watch any game, right? So 
with that being said, people, there's not as much incentive to get to games. And this is kind of across sports. You have these virtual reality. You can be courtside now in the, for NBA games. And like, so why would you want to trek to Newark or wherever it may be at 6.30 on a weeknight to watch uh, a game, right? You could just uh, curl up on the couch and watch it. So I think it's, it's a combination of not a, not a huge fan base and some of just the realities of sports these days. We're not going to see the um, Continental Airlines be packed to the rafters anymore. I don't, I don't think that's going to, maybe maybe against Villanova, but um, not on a regular basis. Yeah, we used to track to the Meadowlands for games on a Tuesday against Fairfield and still get 12,000 fans. This is a different time and age, though. You are right. First, that's we do that's a, hard to believe. Yeah, it was, it was crazy that Fairfield could bring that kind of crowd in. So, Chris, we do this little thing at the end of interviews called Walk the Plank. We ask you five kind of rapid-fire questions. We expect rapid-fire answers. Don't think about it too much. Don't explain it too much. Just just knock them out. Are you ready for this? Yeah, sounds a little bit threatening, but I think I'm ready. <laughs> Okay, here we go, Chris. Besides Seton Hall, what program would you want to cover most with the same access you have today? Villanova. Chance to interview any pirate, past or present, one-on-one, who would it be? Derek Gordon. Chance to interview any college basketball figure of all time, who would it be? That's uh, uh, PJ. With all the recent talk of most exciting Seton Hall games, which game ranks you number one for you? It's got to be the uh, Big East tournament title game, right? When you wake up after a big Seton Hall win... Whose blog do you read first, Carino or Goretti? <laughs> it's got to be my own. I got to proofread my stuff. Chris, you've walked the plank. Congratulations. Thanks, buddy. Thanks so much for being a guest here, Chris. I hope you enjoyed it. We did over here. And uh, hopefully, maybe we'll even make this kind of a, uh, a regular uh, session. We'll bring you in for five minutes. You can talk about whatever you want. Sounds great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That was Chris McManus, everybody. And if you enjoyed the interview with him, please check out some of our other podcasts, including interviews with former pirate John Yablonski and former WSOU broadcaster Mike McEnany. We want to give a shout-out to our sponsors, Chocolate Toast Studios. Chocolate Toast's goal as a studio is to show the importance of multicultural diversity through character development. Founded in 2010, Chocolate Toast Studios will change the standard by presenting positive characters of all backgrounds, thus showing all children and people characters they can relate to with a sense of pride. Filling in here for the absent Mike Dizzy Dizzeri, I'm Tommy Chokaharski, and this has been Left Coast Pirates.